Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, and we will conclude our spring sermon series today because it's no longer spring. Uh, well, technically, I guess, until June 20th, right? Uh, so we are concluding our spring series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, which we have been in now for several months, uh, called None Like Him. We've been looking, of course, at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, looking at the exclusivity of Christ, how no one who has ever lived can do what he did and is who he is. And we're going to see that on full display today as we cover the last couple of chapters of Mark. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us as we turn to his word. Jesus, again, we thank you for your grace and your love. We love you. We want to love you more. And I pray that your word now would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth. And that the truth would truly set us free. Jesus, let us see you on the cross today. Let us see the empty tomb. And let us see ourselves in light of these things. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When you think about your life and you look over the course of many years, however, however old you are, we look back and we see very defining moments. Moments in life that really make us who we really are. Big, pivotal, monumental moments of life. So for example, maybe you moved to a new city or you look back and you remember your first job or your first promotion or when you finally got the job that you always wanted. And sometimes those defining moments aren't very fun to think about or they're at least not happy moments Perhaps the death of a loved one was a defining moment in your life. But then there are those wonderful celebrations too. Getting married, having your first child is such a defining moment, right? Going to your first Backstreet Boys concert, amen? Right? And I think they're coming to Jacksonville later this summer. Don't ask me how or why I know that, okay. But here's the thing. What you will see today as we conclude the Gospel of Mark is the most defining moment of human history. But what if I told you that what you're gonna to see today that happened 2,000 years ago is also the defining moment of your life today? Last week we left off in Mark chapter 14 as well where Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. But this Passover meal was different because Jesus affirmed himself as the Passover lamb, that sacrifice that was needed for God's judgment to pass over our sins. So this week, as we conclude the book of Mark, we will see exactly how that metaphor at dinner that night actually came to happen in reality. So here's where we left off. See, after that meal that we saw last week, the Passover meal, Jesus leaves, he goes to pray with his disciples in the garden of Gethsemane, but Judas, one of his disciples, betrays him and has him arrested. Then they lead Jesus to stand trial before the Jewish religious leaders who hated Jesus, right, because they were jealous of him, they wanted the attention, they wanted control over people, and so all they want to do is eliminate him because he's a threat to their job security, he's a threat to their pride, 
but they literally can't even come up with a good argument as to why he should be charged with anything. They have nothing on him that will stick. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So these religious leaders, they say he deserves death because he's claiming to be divine. Jesus is outright saying he is the son of God. And they call this blasphemy. But they can't execute Jesus without Rome's approval. So they take Jesus to the Roman governor, a man named Pilate. Now, Pilate questions Jesus and acknowledges the charges brought against him. But here's the thing about Pilate. He just wants to keep the crowds happy. Pilate wants to just appease the Jews and prevent a revolt against the Roman government. So that picks up in Mark chapter 15, verse six. Look at this. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So Pilate has this tradition of pardoning one prisoner during the Passover festival, verse seven. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Now, understand who this man Barabbas is, okay? He is described here as a rebel. He is guilty of a revolt of some kind against Rome. And on top of that, he is a convicted murderer. So he's not just another criminal. He is the worst of the worst. So Pilate wants to keep his job Right? He wants to keep his tradition of pardoning someone and letting a prisoner free at the choice of the Jews to appease them, but who will it be? Look what he says in verse 9. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Referring to Jesus, because that's the charge they tried to tack onto him. Verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate at least knows that. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So you see the manipulation and the maliciousness of the religious leaders on full display here. They will not be satisfied until Jesus is dead. They would even rather have a convicted murderer roaming the streets free. Verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him 
to be crucified. As we continue on in this story today, looking at the account of Jesus' death, I believe Mark gives us great insight into what was really happening. You know, I think when we talk about or we think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, it's so familiar to us that we kind of, if we're not careful, we can lose the significance of what was really happening. I think we mostly focus on the fact that our sin was paid for, that Jesus died for our sins. We use that phrase a lot, and that is true and right, of course. But too often, I believe, we overlook the fact that when Jesus died in our place, we are getting something in return. In other words, there was an exchange taking place, a full exchange. You see, this defining moment in human history, and when I say that, I mean that the whole world up until this point had been working up to this moment. From the very moment that sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of time, God had a plan that an offspring of Adam and Eve would crush the serpent's head, Satan's head, would defeat sin and death and its power forever. And so throughout the whole Old Testament, they were longing for that offspring. They were longing for someone to rise up and crush the serpent's head, and no one was able to do it until we get to this moment. And around the year 33 AD, in a small province of the Roman Empire called Palestine, where Jesus of Nazareth is standing trial. I think we overlook this defining moment in human history, but we must understand that this is our defining moment. If you have put your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus and not yourself, this, what we're about to go through for the rest of this sermon, this is your defining moment. Because a great exchange took place. Jesus stood in your place and he gave you himself and all that comes along with knowing him. So that's what I want us to see in the rest of the message today, in the great exchange, we can call it. In this great exchange, we move from death to life because of three things. Number one, Jesus takes our guilt and penalty. We get his innocence and freedom. Jesus takes your guilt and the penalty of death that you should have died, and in exchange, you get to move from death to life, not because of you or anything you've done, but because of his innocence and his freedom given to you. Look at Mark chapter 15, verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. You see, I believe that word instead carries an enormous amount of meaning with it. Because do you see what's happening here? Jesus, the innocent, is being punished instead of Barabbas, the guilty. Jesus will be crucified instead of Barabbas. So what's happening in this moment there before Pilate is a picture it's a picture of what's about to happen just outside the city a few hours later on the cross for you and me. You see, here's what you can't miss when you read this story. You and I, 
We are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. Think about it. Like Barabbas, he was described as a rebel who formed or participated in an insurrection against Rome. Well, you and I, we are rebels in the spiritual sense, guilty of insurrection against our creator. We are rebels. We have turned our backs, not just turned our backs against God, we have fought against him. And you say, I don't fight against God. Oh, really? Are there never moments in your life where you feel that you must be the ultimate authority in your decision-making? Where you trump God and you say, okay, thanks, Lord, I'll let you know if I need you, but in the meantime, I've got this under control. All of us are guilty for wanting to be our own authority. We don't want to answer to anyone else, including God himself, and that is what sin is, ultimately. It's answering to ourselves and what we think is best versus what God says is best and his authority. We are Barabbas. Like we saw last week, for God to be a good and a righteous judge, our rebellion against him must be punished. But on the cross, Jesus stood in our place. And so as Barabbas was a prisoner, we too are prisoners to our own sin, enslaved to it. But Jesus steps in front of us in the courtroom of heaven and says, don't punish him, don't punish her, punish me instead and give him give her my innocence second corinthians 5 21 says it very clearly for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that what in him we might become the righteousness of god Jesus took on the full weight of your sin and in exchange gives you his righteousness. So understand this, when you turn to Jesus to be your savior, not only are your sins forgiven and paid for, that's not the end of the story. You get his record of righteousness credited to your life account. Think of it this way. It'd be like when you were in school, or kids, if you're still in school, right? You get a report card, and your report card is awful, right? It's the kind that you don't want to take home to mom and dad, because there's probably going to be some consequences. You know what I mean? Anybody ever been there? But what if another student in the class saw your report card, and his was perfect? I mean, 100, straight across the board, A+, 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 behavior, grades, everything, perfect. And he takes your report card, he erases your name on it and puts his name. And he gives you his report card, erases his name and puts your name. And then that's your record. Now, that would be a lie, that wouldn't be true. But it'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? But here's the amazing thing. That is exactly what happens on the cross in exchange for our sin. Jesus does give us his record and it is true. It is as real as you can imagine. It is real, it is true, it is reality. So in this exchange, by taking your guilt, you are receiving his innocence. That's why in Romans eight verse one, 
Paul can say this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But do you understand the word no there? No condemnation. There's not some condemnation, and then you have to somehow make up for that in your life by being a good moral person or attending church or doing good things. There is no condemnation for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, it doesn't exist. You are as innocent and as free for the true Christian. For the true Christian, when God the Father looks at you, he does not see any legal guilt on your account. Zero. That is hard for us to fathom. It doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. But that's what you've been given. When God the Father looks at you, he sees the innocence of Jesus. He sees Christ's record in your place instead of ours. So since our penalty has been paid, we are free. What does that mean? It means that sin, sin does not have to have dominion over you. As Wanda read for us earlier in Romans 6, we're not under law, we're under grace. Sin does not have to have dominion over you. So when we do sin, we're not living in the true freedom that we have. Look at how Jesus says this in John 8, verse 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, see, they're confused. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, in their minds, they're thinking, oh, Jesus, listen, I grew up in church. I'm a religious person. I'm as free as I can be. What are you talking about? I live in America. What, what, is, what do I need to be free from, Jesus? Jesus says, Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So legally speaking, you are in good standing before a holy God who must punish sin, not because of anything you have done, but because someone perfect swapped places with you. Practically speaking, this doesn't mean that we're going to live without sin in this lifetime. That is not possible. In this broken world, in our broken bodies, with our broken hearts and minds, we are still sinful people, but we're under repair. We've been purchased by Jesus Christ and he is repairing us. He is redeeming us is the right theological word. He is redeeming us until the day that he calls you home or he returns. And what that means is that we can fight against sin. We don't have to sin. We can live in the freedom that Christ gives us as we obey his word. Let's keep reading about how this swapping places, this exchange happened. Mark chapter 15, let's go to verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, 
the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And that leads us to the second point, the second aspect that I want us to see today. In this great exchange, we get to move from death to life because, number two, Jesus takes our shame and separation. We get his approval and access. Jesus takes our shame and separation from God. We get his approval by God the Father and access to him. Let's keep reading in verse uh, 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are some of the most mysterious words in all of Scripture. It's hard for us to fathom and understand exactly what was happening and what Jesus meant, but maybe not as hard as you think because he's actually quoting Scripture. Jesus himself is quoting Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David is crying out to the Lord, feeling like he has been abandoned. But on the cross, Jesus references Psalm 22 because he is actually being abandoned by God the Father for the first time in all of eternity. Do not undermine the significance of this. As Christians, we affirm the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. God is one in three persons. There is one God. We don't ask everyone to understand it because we can't, but we ask to believe it. The scriptures affirm it. And in other words, God has always existed in a community of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit points us to the Son. For the first time ever, Jesus himself on the cross was experiencing something he had never felt before. He was experiencing abandonment from his Father. He was experiencing separation and shame. As everyone walked by and mocked him, that shame that came with being crucified publicly on the most excruciating form of torture in the Roman Empire, nothing compared. As darkness fell over the land, Jesus realizing that God, his Father, had turned his face away. Because Jesus was being judged for our sin. And what we must understand is that that should be us. 
You will never fully appreciate the grace of God until you understand this. That you deserve to be separated from God forever. That's how serious it is. That our creator made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He created us to love him, to worship him, and to not let anything else in this world come in place of that. But yet we grow up and we live our lives and we turn to money and we turn to all kinds of things in this world, success, wealth, sex. We turn to all these things thinking that those things will make us happy, that will deliver peace and comfort and get us through the tough times. That rebellion against our own creator, God, that deserves separation from him. But understand this, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries that out so that you and I will never have to. He experiences the separation and the shame. And what do we get? We get God's full approval. Because Jesus took your shame and separation, God the Father fully approves of you for all eternity. Because he approves of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, we looked at this earlier on in our series, God the Father said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the amazing thing is that when you trust Christ to be your savior, that's what God says of you. You are my beloved son or daughter, and with you, I am so pleased. Not because you did something to deserve my approval, but because you came to Christ and he earned my approval for you. And because we're approved of God, that means that now we can boldly approach God the Father. We have access to him. And how special is that? Mark chapter 15, look at verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And immediately when Jesus dies, what happens? Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now why on earth is that significant? What did Mark include that here for? When Jesus, the Son of God, is taking his last breath, why is Mark starting to talk about tapestry in the temple? Because, see, the temple represented the presence of God. And there was actually a specific part of the temple, a room called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And there was a curtain. There was a giant curtain. I'm not talking about a thin piece of fabric. I'm talking about a thick curtain like a wall that kept people out from the presence of God, the most holy place where only the most holy person, a high priest, could enter in there on the most holy day once a year and make a sacrifice and atone for the sins of the people. Once a year, one person. When Jesus dies, notice it said, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. A human did not do the tearing. God tears 
the separation, the wall, the barrier that separated people from his presence, it's gone. And so now through Jesus and faith in him, as you follow him, you get direct access to God the Father. He is yours. You do not have to go to a confessional booth to see a priest. You do not have to pray to anyone else. You have direct straight line to God himself. He is yours. It would be as if, think of this, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. All his appointments are very strict. His secretary has his schedule, his calendar mapped out. And so hour by hour, it's just one appointment to the next, one appointment to the next. But what if that CEO was your dad? And he loved you and he was generous to you. And in fact, you didn't have to make an appointment with him. Sometimes the people who worked for him thought it was annoying, but you could just walk into his office whenever you wanted. You always had direct access to him, no matter what. And he was always welcoming you. That is exactly, on a much larger scale, what you get when the Father accepts you. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues into Mark chapter 16 and we see the third and final aspect that we're going to see today in this great exchange, how we move from death to life. You know why? Number three, (laughs) because Jesus, Jesus is raised to new life and so are we. Mark chapter 16 verses one through eight, look at this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So Jesus has died. He's been buried in a tomb. Verse two, and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It was large. They knew they couldn't do it alone. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In the moment, they were afraid. I mean, can you imagine? You saw him bled. You saw him take his last breath. And now he's not there. He's not in the tomb. He's gone. Of course, we know that he was alive. He went on to appear to his disciples and spend time with them before ascending into heaven. Jesus rose from the grave. John Stott, the theologian, says, we are not, we are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Jesus rose from the grave because sin had been paid for. 
Death had been defeated on the cross, and the resurrection is proof of that. Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see that? In this great exchange, Jesus took on our death and gives you his life. And that's possible because he's alive. He didn't stay dead. He is alive. He walked out of that tomb on that Sunday morning. And so what Paul is telling us in Romans 6 is that just as on the cross he swapped places with you and you were united with him, then whatever else happens after that, you're with Christ. And so if he raises from the dead, so will you. If he has new resurrection glorified body, so will you because you have been knitted to him forever. You have been joined with him forever. Romans 6, 11 says, so, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now that word consider, what does that mean? Well, see, we are, we are dead to sin. We are alive in Christ Jesus. That's the reality. But boy, do we forget that. The pastor and theologian, Paul David Tripp, he talks a lot about spiritual amnesia. How we so easily and quickly forget who we really are. We forget that we're dead to sin. We forget that we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so listen to me. If you don't get anything else out of this series from Mark, get this. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We must remind ourselves of who we really are. We must see ourselves in light of the cross and the resurrection and remind ourselves what Paul says here. Consider ourselves, remember ourselves that we are dead to sin. We do not have to live. We do not have to be a slave to our own sinful desires. We don't have to bow down to our idols. And so all those things in your life that tend to kind of control you a little bit, your need to be approved by others, it controls the way you act, it controls who you hang around, it controls your words, your need to have control. It controls the way that you talk to your spouse and your kids and the way you do your work and how people think of you, your need to be successful, your need for all these things deep down. These are idols in our hearts that truly manipulate us and do take control of us if we let them. But what Jesus says is that we don't have to be a slave to those things anymore. We have been set free. We have a newness of life that we walk in. We have resurrection life. That's who we are. We must remember who we really are. See, because here's the thing. Satan, that ancient serpent since the beginning of time, has been lying to you. He's been lying to humans. He's been telling us that God doesn't really love us. He's been telling us that God will never forgive us. He's been telling us that you're not worthy and you're not good enough, and there's some truth in that. But if you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and God the Father is your Father, 
There is nothing that can separate you from his love. And so as we've seen today, your defining moment is not your sin. Your defining moment is God's grace through Jesus' death and resurrection. That is your defining moment. That is what you've been given is who you are. You may hear these accusations, though, from Satan night and day, but praise God, one day those accusations will be silenced forever. Revelation 12, verse 10 speaks of this. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, Satan is who he's referring to, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The accuser loves to speak these lies into your heart. Let me tell you, do not believe them. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are more loved than you could ever imagine. You are fully approved. You are fully accepted. And there's nothing that can separate you from that. There's no one, there's no power on earth or in heaven that could ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. So the question that I wanna end with today, I intentionally skipped one verse here very significantly. How does all of this become true for you? What I mean is this great exchange, how does it become yours? Because it's not, it's not automatic. It's not just because you're here. It's not because your parents were Christians and they raised you in church or because you raised your hand as a child or whatever. How does this really become true? In other words, how do you swap places with Jesus? How does that happen? And the answer is by turning to Jesus with faith. By turning to Jesus away from your sin, the Bible calls that repentance, and turning to Christ with faith. In fact, that's how we started out this series. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, what did Jesus say? He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The verse I said that I intentionally skipped and I wanted to come back to is Mark Chapter 15, verse 39. And this, when the centurion, and that's a Roman soldier, probably the one in charge of Jesus' execution squad. In other words, the man who led the tactical effort at Golgotha to nail Jesus to the cross and actually crucify him and kill him. That man, a pagan man, not a Jewish man, not a religious man, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, this man, we don't know much about him, except that he was a soldier of some sort. And being non-Jewish, he would have been a pagan, possibly 
worshiping multiple gods, Roman gods. But there was something happening before his eyes. He very well could have been the person literally, physically closest to Jesus if he was overseeing the execution. He could have been just feet away. And there was something that he saw in Christ that nothing else in his life compared to in that moment. There was something he saw when he turned away from his life and everything he's ever known and he looked up to the cross and he faces Jesus. He turns to Christ and he believes truly this man was the son of God. That is exactly what can be true and said of you. And John chapter 5, verse 24, tells us, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you are wondering where you stand before God, I want you to know that that answer will never be resolved in your mind if you think that you just have to try harder. If you think that you just have to figure something out logically in your head, if you think that you just need to be more religious somehow, if you're not sure where you stand before a holy God, I want you to know today that the only way, the only way that great question of your soul can be resolved is by turning and looking at the cross, at Jesus himself, and seeing the love, the sacrifice, the infinite cost it took him to swap places with you. That he did everything you could never do. He lived the life that we try to live and we just can't. We're never gonna be good enough to please God. But Jesus was good enough. He was perfect. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death in your place that you should have died. And so now you don't have to be shamed. You have no guilt. There is no condemnation. There is only grace, love, approval, and mercy. For now and forevermore. It's faith. It's turning away from thinking you can save yourself to the one, the only one, facing him straight on and giving your heart to him, the only one who can. That's how we move from death to life. So if you're a Christian here today, I encourage you, remind yourself of this every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself when Satan, the accuser, tries to lie to you and tell you that you're not worthy, that you'll never be good enough, you say, you know what, you're right, I'm not worthy and I'll never be good enough, but Jesus is and he is mine. 
My life is hidden in him. His record's been given to me. Speak that truth to yourself. May we share that truth with ourselves every day. May we share that truth with a lost and hurting world that needs to hear it. There is a path from death to life. And the only way is through Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is truly none like you. Jesus, I thank you for the gospel of Mark, this historical account of your life, your death, and your resurrection. Just the wealth of truth. The portrayal of your life, Lord, that we can see the depth of your love and what you went through. The length you went to, Lord, to save us, to rescue us from ourselves. Lord, forgive us for when our lives look more like the people who mocked you than those who have taken up their cross to follow you. Lord, forgive us for when we believe the lies of Satan that we are not loved by you, that you don't have a plan for us, that you're not in control. Lord, forgive us for where we fail to remember the gospel and live in the true identity of who we really are. So give us grace, Holy Spirit. Lead us to Jesus every single day. And I thank you, Lord, for exchanging places with us. Thank you, Lord, for moving us from death to life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.